Welcome to Unsupervised Learning, where we explore the models, patterns, and ideas that prepare you for what's coming next. In this standalone episode, we're doing a sponsored interview with Scott Kufer, co-founder and COO of Nucleus Security. I was already excited about this vendor just based on the research I did to allow them to be a sponsor, but the conversation with them really made me think they're approaching this vulnerability management problem the right way, namely by tackling a lot of the non-technical problems, using technical solutions rather than obsessing over vuln prioritization, which a lot of previous companies did. So if you're in the VM space or you're about to be in it, you will love this conversation. And with that, here's Scott Kufer of Nucleus Security. Welcome to Unsupervised Learning. I will have already introduced you, but could you tell us the name of the product and uh, tell us about yourself? Sure. Hey, Daniel, great to be here. My name is Scott Kufer. I am one of the co-founders of Nucleus Security and the current chief operating officer. Uh, Nucleus Security is a risk-based vulnerability management solution, which essentially aggregates all of the disparate data within an, uh, your organization's environment. So everything from asset inventory to all of your vulnerability scanning systems to threat intelligence, uh, ticketing systems, all that sort of fun stuff. Uh, aggregates all that into a single place and then normalizes it into a single location so that you can take action on it, right? So everything from prioritization to automating uh, repetitive tasks from an analysis perspective to uh, getting the right information to the right folks, reporting, all of that sort of fun stuff. Okay. So you said a few things there. Uh, Risk-based, which I really like. Um, assets, which is really interesting. Threat intelligence. What, what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, your ticketing systems and kind of your downstream, um, you know, call it like your your action-oriented type systems, right? Ticketing systems, SIMs, SOARs, those types of systems. How are you doing the risk-based stuff? So how is it risk-based? Yeah, so a little background. I think it's probably easier to start with a little bit of background on myself, my, my couple co-founders. So we all started in the Department of Defense doing vulnerability management for uh, the DOD and other various agencies throughout the U.S. government. And uh, if you're not familiar with the way the government works, is they're basically doing everything compliance-driven. Uh, especially yeah. back in those days, right? And one of the things that we were tasked with doing was essentially fundamentally running and building an entire new VM process from the ground up for uh, various agencies. And so what we realized very quickly was that uh, everybody involved in the VM process has kind of their own little swim lane that they're, that they're sitting in, right? You have the assessors whose job it is is to go in and find and discover vulnerability data. You've got the ISOs, <clears throat> excuse me, you have the ISOs, which are the people that have to come in and assess the data that's being generated by the people that are out there and discovering the information, right? And then it goes on and on. And there's probably like 12 to 15 different stages of this process. And so what we found out is that everybody actually does an okay job within their own little swim lanes, but where the real gaps are was the overarching process. There was no real governance of the entirety of the process. And so what was happening is that you were losing a whole bunch of value uh, at every stage of your, of your pipeline. And so we decided that we actually wanted to build a system that we could automate the entirety of the pipeline. So not automating the scanning, not automating necessarily the patch management itself, but everything that goes in between that, right? From we have data, now what do we do with it? Everything from the aggregation analysis, et cetera, right? And so I'm giving that background because when we talk about risk-based, what that really means is kind of applying a risk management framework and ideology to your, uh, to your vulnerability data. And so uh, you have CVSS score, which represents technical severity. And oftentimes, because it's just difficult to do, most organizations end up just using CVSS scoring as like basically a, an indicator of risk, which is just not accurate. And so what we said is CVSS scoring is like kind of one piece of it. 
but we need to be able to add additional attributes of data we already have in our environment to be able to essentially fully understand what our risk is. And so that's the basis of our risk-based approach. And so the asset information and business context is a huge part of it. Uh, the threat data to tell you about what's happening externally with all of the vulnerabilities in your environment, plus the data about the vulnerabilities you actually have in your environment to be able to tell you between those three high-level factors, you can get a good idea of probability impact and all this, uh, all those types of things. Okay, so risk is primarily coming, I guess it's half asset and half vulnerability. Is that right? Um, it's it's actually, well, within Nucleus, it's, it's tunable, but um, our approach is more around you as the user or as the company had your own risk framework that you like to make decisions based on. And so for some organizations that can be half asset, half vulnerability, some organizations that might be uh, exploitation, it might actually be a single sub, sub piece of a vulnerability attribute that's the main part that drives your risk. And so it's, it's really up to an organization on how you would like to approach it. But yes, it's, it's equally important to have asset and business context as well as the vulnerability context in our, in our yeah. view. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out how the formula is built. So if you have um, some random server is, is found um, and vulnerabilities come back and, and let's say it's a, it's a critical, it's like a 9.8 or something. Yeah. Um, what would the total score be for this random server? I, I guess my question is, how, what's the input mechanism for, for us to figure out that the asset is high risk or low risk? Oh, absolutely. I got you now. So this is actually one of like a, like a bigger challenge that, that we sometimes laugh about, but realistically, um, the first step to doing vulnerability management correctly is in our view, asset management. Like you have to understand the 100%. context around your assets. And actually our biggest challenge as a business is not whether or not people can do vulnerability management, right? It's actually whether or not they can do asset management right first. And yes. so, so we have a lot of partnerships with upstream asset inventory, asset discovery, those types of systems and tools, because it's a lot easier for us to say, hey, let's help you go get that in order, because that makes our lives you know, infinitely easier than trying to help you also define all of your asset management uh, inside of Nucleus. But uh, to answer your question more directly, you have all these attributes that sometimes live in a CMDB, sometimes they just live kind of in the ether or spreadsheets or, or wherever an organization decides to put uh, rating systems. Um, sometimes it's with individual teams, sometimes it's centralized. And so you have to essentially build a process and a system to assess uh, internally, hey, what do these assets mean to us? And normally we see that broken out into like four main categories. The first is what's the business criticality of the asset, right? That's just normally a simple scale, like, you know, high, medium, low, uh, or one to 10. Uh, what's the sensitivity of the data that exists on this asset? What is, uh, is it publicly facing or not? Like where in the network is it? Is it the DMZ? Is it publicly facing to everybody? And then is it uh, in scope for compliance? So is it something that runs that we get PCI audited every year? Because uh, those have different requirements than ones that are just random dev, uh, dev environments, even if everything else is equal. And so uh, those are the four main attributes that we see kind of generally add up to a pretty good indicator of, of an asset without having to have huge amounts of overhead. Because you can assess each one of those pretty quickly um, as, you, as you go through your asset management process. And there's a lot that can lead into that. And how about like a crown jewel type of marker? Would that just be a high in this context? Um, yeah, you could do it that way. Um, I mean, obviously, there's ways of of tagging things as well, right? So if you yep. wanted to say, "Hey, it's super business critical," you know, every all the attributes are equal, but like these are our our set of crown jewels that are the most mission critical, and we want to take a certain set of action uh, that's completely different than you know our normal process, right? It's it kind of it's where you start getting into that what's an incident versus what's regular day to day vulnerability management activity, and so you know that there's actually like a layer above critical um, that we're seeing as a big uh, pattern in the industry. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, we have critical vulnerabilities, but we've got 500,000 criticals. So now, like, what are the ones that are the, you know, break glass in case of emergency ones? Well, 100%. And, and where would they modify that? Would they modify that in their asset management system that's out outside of Nucleus? And then it gets imported in and just 
becomes part of it? Or would they go into the asset management portion of your product and market there? Uh, you could do either, actually. Uh, so the Nucleus system was built to be, um, the way we describe it is kind of like a, like a, like a brain that sits in the middle of your VM process. And so it inter interfaces with all the tools. And so, yeah, your brain could actually know, you know about whether or not the asset is a crown jewel, but it could just as easily figure that information out from the hand, which might be ServiceNow or whatever tool you're using for, for that. So if you modify it in the upstream tool, Nucleus is going to know about it. And then you can change behavior inside of Nucleus based on data coming from that tool. Or you could say, hey, we want to actually track that inside of Nucleus and just do it all in one spot. So there's, there's really options and it, and it depends on the organization's uh, layout. Because sometimes you've got global enterprises that have giant you know, business units that are globally uh, dispersed. Sometimes you have smaller companies with one business unit. And, and so it's, you know, there's a whole gamut of different op options depending on the type of business you run. That makes sense. Okay, so the, the asset system itself, that all sounds good. What, what about ownership? Mm -hmm. Figuring out when you have something, who are you going to talk to? This is another thing that's, what I find interesting about this space is it's not technically finding vulns that is like anywhere close to the top of the problem. The, yeah. the problem is more process. It's more people. It's more buy-in, right? So when I look at solutions like this, I'm like, how is, how is this helping them conquer those issues, right? So ownership is a huge one. I'm guessing that it, within the asset management system inside of Nucleus, you have the ability to have a field for owner and just maintain it there. Or similar to criticality, you can import it also when it comes in. Is that right? That's exactly right. And um, I'm, I, it's funny because what you're describing is what we call the Ghostbusters problem. It's the who you going to call type of thing, yeah, right? So, um, and, and that was really funny. Like the first thing that we decided to solve was the main core problem of Nucleus that we were originally set out to solve was, hey, we have all this data, but we are three people and we're the only three people that can access this data. How do we take this information and just share it? to the person who's responsible for this thing. Because the vulnerability managers are not the ones actually fixing things. They're right. just the ones managing the process. And so um, to answer your question directly, yes, that is absolutely uh, the way that we think about it. Uh, there are multiple layers of ownership inside of Nucleus. So, um, and the reason is so that you, you can support very complex types of, of use cases, right? So we have the concept of individual people owners, right? So like, who's your business sponsor? We have the concept of uh, executive team, business owners, and then we have the concept of support teams as well. So. Um, and the reason for that is you might have your ownership of the asset, like who actually owns the asset is different than who's responsible for patching and maintaining the asset. And then you also have to have additional logic built into, in this case, Nucleus that says, well, if it's an operating system layer vulnerability, it goes to this team for this right. group. But if it's like Apache or Oracle or, or any other type of system, you need to be, have the flexibility to say, if that happens, let's automatically assign uh, to and you know, define the ownership for the team that's responsible for it. And then that's where you unlock huge potential, right? You can start tracking actual SLAs, right? It's like your SLAs are useless if you never actually tell anybody that they own stuff, for example. And, and so it's amazing what this, can, what this can enable. Yeah, absolutely. Or if you tell the wrong person and just kind of sits there and the clock is running, but it's running against the wrong person. Yep. Uh, and then the ticketing system is, is, are those just integrations or is it your own ticketing? Yeah, we, uh, we again, we try to be flexible. Uh, we didn't build Nucleus to be a ticketing system, right? I mean, there's a million bajillion of those. Um, you know, you can even, we've seen people trying to use like even just regular business ticketing project management systems, right? Like Monday and, and things like that oh, to try oh, to yeah, manage yeah, their yeah. ClickUp or whatever, right? And so uh, we have obviously the ability to ticket and create, you know, units of work inside of Nucleus um, and then bundle those into, you know, any sort of sprints or however you want to think about it. But the more important thing for us is actually the tracking of the underlying vulnerability because uh, we, we noticed really early on that there's a difference between a vulnerability, which is essentially like a stateless long-term thing. It's a unit of data that needs to 
It can come back. It can disappear. It can show up on new things. Like it's more about the link of what it is. Um, and then the tickets are the actual kind of time boxed units of work that need to happen. And so we actually prefer and sort of propose that people think about tickets in external systems and they use Nucleus as the tracking piece of that, right? So that way, if a vulnerability does come back, you can see, hey, what are all the tickets that have ever been created? How many times did we try to fix this thing and it kept coming back? Like there's so much additional insight. And then also the reason we prefer that is because again, it goes back to that ownership piece. This vulnerability is owned by a developer, but I, the AppSec engineer, am responsible for it getting fixed. And I need to be able to represent both of those pieces of ownership uh, kind of simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And so being able to do that at scale in a really uh, concise, easy way is why we don't really think of ourselves as a ticketing system, although we do have a lot of customers that use us in that way. But again, I think it depends on where customers are in their maturity journey when it comes to VM. Well, sure, but what other way would you have to actually get the work to the people who need to do the work uh, other than like a ticketing system? Well, abs absolutely, right? But, and that's, and that's the idea. So we integrate with obviously all of the ticketing, like the major ticketing systems you would expect, right? Jira, ServiceNow, Zendesk, et cetera, those kinds of things. Um, but that's where we want the people that are responsible for doing the work to stay, right? Like I don't want a patch manager to have to come into Nucleus and try to figure out what vulnerabilities mean. They should have a thing that's maybe it's a group of vulnerabilities. Maybe it's a single ticket that kind of bundles up a bunch of vulnerabilities fixed by a single patch in their patch management tool, prioritized in their normal process, goes through regular change management, goes through all of those things, but it's prioritized effectively based on the data that's informed out of Nucleus, right? It's a, it's a, yeah, we don't necessarily want people inside of Nucleus, which I know is like anti-SAS, uh, makes me probably a bad, a bad co-founder, but we want folks to be using the tools they're already using and Nucleus to be an enrichment capability for every aspect of the process, as opposed to trying to say, hey, everybody, come on into Nucleus. We're going to be another single pane of glass for you. We'll be your 10th single pane of glass that you I have. Really, I really love that you're saying this because um, I, I don't see this as a technical problem. I, I, well, it, it involves a technical problem, but the technical problem is not the problem. The problem Absolutely. is the process, right? So I agree with you. Like, If Jira is your life, you should just have amazing content inside of Jira, and that's where it's getting fixed. <clears throat> so the question is the step before that which is how do you get the right stuff into the right ticket to the right, going to the right person? Exactly. And that is, that is a non-vuln management problem. It is a process problem that, that is part of vuln management. And, and it's, it's crazy. Um, so what is the overall, and we'll come back to the threat intelligence piece, which is gotcha. at the end here, but um, what is the overall process? So you have, I assume that the scanners are outside of your system, right? So however you're getting the signal that's outside and then, um, how do, how do the results come into the tool? Are there connectors or are they auto imports or what does that look like? Yeah, so that that's a great question because, you know, if you'd asked me this five years ago, you know, most of the scanners didn't even have really good APIs that you could pull data from, right? So you yeah. had to find ways to push data. Um, and so we got really excited around 2017, 2018 timeframe because everybody started building, building APIs. And so we started building these automated pulls of data from different systems. Um, but then really quickly, uh, the world was changing. And so technology was changing very rapidly. And there are a ton of other types of, of data generation sources around vulnerability management, right? Cloud security posture management, your EDR vendors are generating VM data, uh, SIMs are generating VM data. And so you can't expect to just constantly pull other systems for data. And so we have essentially three, like what I would call three broad ways of getting data into the platform, because we want that to be the easy part, right? We don't want you to have to think about that. That's not what we're here to solve. Like we want that almost to be transparent to you as the user. Like I click a couple buttons and then I can just do all of the things that I need to do inside of, inside of Nucleus. Now, granted, that's a very challenging problem to solve technically on the back end, right? Like data movement of the amount of, like we're getting terabytes and terabytes of data every hour, right? So there's, there's obviously some deep technical challenges, but we don't want that 
to be uh, reflected to the user necessarily. We want them yeah. to not even necessarily know how much data they have. But um, so we have connectors to pull data out of a bunch of different systems. We have the ability to push data um, and you can do that in two different ways. The first is through a manual file upload. So you can like extract the data out of any system you want and push it up to Nucleus. And then the third is what we call much more like real-time push of data. Um, so this is where we have the ability to essentially integrate, let's say like you have a Lambda function deployed in AWS that bundles up a certain type of data, regardless of whatever type of data that is, could be asset information, could be like container registry information, could be a bundle of CSPM data from Security Hub, and then actually has the ability to push that on up to Nucleus in an automated way. And so it kind of depends on what your environment looks like. So if you're like a big Qualys shop and all you do is Qualys, then yes, there's a connector for Qualys. You, you know, connect us up there, we'll extract the data at scale and we've, we're built for that. But if you're a CI CD shop and you're using Sneak and Checkmarks and let's say like SonarCube and all these other types of systems, um, you can actually orchestrate the pushing of all that data up to Nucleus through your, your build pipeline. Um, so that way it's, again, we're trying to make that sort of just the detail that you need to get to so that you can actually get to what we're trying to solve, which is again, back to your point, the process issues. Um, like I'm a developer, what vulnerabilities do I have? How do I know how important that is compared to the features that I'm supposed to build versus the bugs that are impacting customers and all those types of decisions, right? Cause that's what we're trying to help get you to. And how about like connectors that go outbound from Nucleus? Like, could you reach out to like Orca or Sneak or whatever and just talk to the API and pull stuff over that way? Yep, absolutely. Of course, that's a, uh, yep, that's pretty common. Uh, I think we've got about 50, 55, 60 of those at this point. Okay, perfect. So there's multiple on-ramps to get the stuff in there. Exactly. So I, I guess it makes a difference how tight that integration is for like rechecking. What, what is the rechecking story? For, so like, mm -hmm. oh, did it get fixed? Should I still be messing with this? Do I cancel the ticket because it got fixed in another way? Like, how, how does it know about the current state? Yeah, that's actually probably for me, the, one of the most exciting things that we do. Uh, so the first and foremost thing that, that um, to go back to kind of the hist historical piece here was we wanted all work that had ever happened to essentially uh, you, for you to get credit for it, right? And that is obviously in a lot of ways driven from, from a compliance perspective of like, hey, we had 10 vulnerabilities yesterday. We have eight vulnerabilities today. What are the two that were fixed? Why were they fixed? How were they fixed? Who fixed them? Like all that, all answering all of those questions about all of the changes. And so from the very beginning, um, probably the most, uh, the most interesting part of our platform is we have all this data. Let's say you give us 50 million vulnerabilities that exist today. And then tomorrow you have 50 million vulnerabilities that exist still. But you have to answer that question. Did you fix 500,000 and also introduce 500,000? So from the very beginning, we built our system to track everything about every single vulnerability that you have. And then we do that as we're ingesting data. And so what your only limit by basically whether or not you can tell um, whether or not vulnerabilities exist or what, what's changed is literally just the polling rates where you say, hey, Orca, has anything changed since two seconds ago? Hey, AWS, has anything changed? Has anything changed? And as soon as something changes, we know about it and we can pull that in. And so um, it's, it's really close to real time, which uh, we're very proud of. Uh, that's one of the things that I would say as one of our specialties is the, the data efficacy and efficiency that we get the uh, data into the platform. I love that, that you're thinking about it early like that. How does that translate downstream to the tickets that are already issued? Yeah, so... Uh, we have a whole automation framework built on top of Nucleus. Um, and when I say on top of, it's just, you know, you basically click the automation page and then it's like, there you go, you got a full module, right? But um, the reason I say it's built on top of is because the way that we view automation is you're automating tasks that you would have to do manually, right? And so step number one is we have data coming into the platform. The first thing that you would actually do is you'd say, hey, we have new assets. What do we want to do with those assets? How do we want to classify them? How do we want to define ownership? How do we want to define business criticality? And you can use a whole bunch of attributes to figure that out. That's step one. Step two is now that you've classified assets on ingest, 
Now you want to say, well, what should we do with new vulnerabilities or existing vulnerabilities or vulnerabilities that have been remediated? And so then you could say, great, well, we actually want to reprioritize or re-risk different vulnerabilities according to a risk-based model, whether that's through threat intel feed information, whether that's through asset information, it's up to you. Um, So we start with assets, then we go to findings. And then once we deal with the findings, now what actually, now what you're at is a normalized set of data that is essentially post-processed your entire organization's uh, ideology for asset and vulnerability management. And then now, now that you have this source of truth, now you can say, what do you want to happen downstream in different systems? Now, sometimes that's creating tickets. Uh, if you have existing tickets that you got created um, that are dispersed automatically, if the vulnerability goes away, uh, there's a configuration where you can say in the actual rule itself, in the actual automation, if this vulnerability disappears from the upstream system, auto-close the ticket with this reasoning, with this attachment, okay. with this specific set of information. So that way you have basically a nice little bow on your whole process. Um, it's the way we think about it. Yeah, that's very cool. Let's see here. What about the motivation problem? Uh, so buy-in and getting people to want to actually do vulnerable management, right? So obviously the team that brought you all in, they want to do vulnerable management, but half of their job is marketing and getting people to buy in, especially on the engineering side. People are going to be doing remediation, which are, you know, they're, they're up against uh, doing features instead of uh, fixing security problems. What mechanisms do you have within the product to sort of help them make it a bigger issue? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. And to answer it, I think I would like to kind of talk about what we feel are the real reasons why people don't want to do vulnerability management, uh, because realistically, it's starting to become a board level issue, right? Like we have half our customers are having to report on VM to the board every quarter as part of their overall security posture reporting, right? And so I would say like now, if you'd asked me this again five years ago, I don't think anybody really cared too much at the board level about vulnerability management, but we're starting to see a, a situation where uh, known vulnerabilities are becoming like the number one way that you get breached. And so as we've shut down phishing, as we've kind of shut down some of the other avenues of approach into an organization, so it's becoming a bigger risk to organizations. And so at a top level, I think there's a lot, there's been a lot of buy-in. The problem, and to your point, is how do we get the, the folks that are actually the ones that are fixing vulnerabilities when it's not their primary job to want to do so? And I think that there's been two big contributing factors as to why folks don't, they, they're, not, they're not motivated. The first is that there's always too much data. Like the, just the volume is incredible. It's like, hey, we, we have an SLA to fix all critical vulnerabilities within 12 days. Like you could literally spend your entire dev team do, just doing just that and never push any features and never get on top of that problem, right? Yep. So number one, there's lack of motivation there. The second is they don't know what to fix, right? Like, okay, you give me a list of things. I don't actually know what you want me to do with this. I'm not a vulnerability management person. Please, like, can you translate this for me? And then I would say the third part is the data efficacy problem is real. Like they're like, hey, you gave me this vulnerability, but that container doesn't exist anymore. So like they just don't trust the information coming out of the the platform teams that support them. And so when you take those three things and you put them together, you get a situation where I don't understand what the data is. There's way too much of it and it's probably wrong. And that's their mindset. And so that's the problem that that you have to overcome as a VM team. And the only ways to do that are to ad- start addressing these root issues, right? Which is why real-time data and the data being correct is so important to Nucleus because you could say, hey, we actually know with a high degree of confidence that this data is accurate, number one. Number two, because you can prioritize inside of Nucleus and have Nucleus be essentially that translation layer to say, okay, well, we've got, we start with 5 million vulnerabilities in our environment, but if we actually boil it down and make decisions around prioritization, we actually get down to like 10 real vulnerabilities that need to be fa- fixed right now. And then we take those 10 and we give them to the right teams. Now, all of a sudden, it's a much easier sell to say, hey, we need you to fix these 10 things. 
And oh, by the way, here's the solution for you. I can focus my efforts on telling you how to fix it because there's so much less volume. And then you can start opening it, opening the faucet up and start bundling things together in a more efficient way because then they'll start to see, hey, if I push this feature, it's actually cheaper and faster and I can do this way quicker. I have to upgrade this library anyway to push this other feature. So I might as well fix the vulnerabilities while I'm at it. Maybe I upgrade to a higher version than I would have previously or whatever, right? It's, it's a mindset shift in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I like that. The other thing I've found useful is to just say, okay, you're slammed, I get it. Just tell me how many you can fix. And they're like, only three. So just turn the knob so you only get the top three. Right, yeah, absolutely. Of those. Um, how, how about custom vulnerabilities? How about like cooperating with like a red team? So you're finding first party stuff, like code related problems, yep. but it's not really going through a tool. Like how would that get into the system? Yeah, actually, uh, so we have a concept that we call custom findings. Um, so for us, uh, and this is actually, uh, I, I'm curious your thoughts on this actually too, Daniel. We're, um, so for a long time, you know, you think of RBVM and everybody thinks CVE based, like threat based prioritization. But we sort of, you know, we understand that there are a lot more findings and vulnerabilities out there than just CVEs. And like even Nessus and Tenable, they did a lot of work around bundling CVEs together into findings to try to make things more efficient. And mm -hmm. so almost by, by taking a CVEs-based only approach, you're sort of unwinding a lot of the actual benefits that you get from uh, one of your vulnerability scanning tools. And I'm, I'll ask you about that in a second. But um, to answer your question specifically, um, we have this concept called a finding. A finding can have multiple CVEs associated with it. Your findings are the unique items or the unique vulnerabilities that we view that you have that need to be fixed. Again, part of that's for efficiency, part of that's for just more intelligent grouping of things automatically, all that sort of fun stuff. But um, we don't care what that finding is. We don't care what your assets are. And so from that perspective, if you have a pen test or you have some sort of custom assessment that you're doing, we have a whole assessments module where you can actually manage assessments over time. You can manage and see, you know, compare assessments of, of different assets uh, to see, hey, what did the scope change? What vulnerabilities actually change between assessments and all those types of things? Um, but basically for us, it's just another type of finding. Uh, very easy to get the data into Nucleus. We have a templates library system. So you can basically, if you're doing the same checks, let's say you're just an OWASP top 10 shop and basically your methodology is just checking for these 10 or 15 different vulnerabilities. Uh, you can actually pre-write those into templates and then just add those to assets and then fill in the relevant details instead of having to constantly copy and paste you know, the same finding methodology for every single assessment, right? So there's there's some methodologies in there. Well, well so practically though, let, let's say that I, I um, I'm on the red team my manager told me that uh, we're entering our findings into this new product called Nucleus, which we just onboarded. And I just got done testing this thing and I've got a critical vulnerability in first party code. Where exactly am I going and what am I doing? Yeah, so that depends on how you want to actually manage that as an organization. Um, so you actually, we have the ability to push that data up to Nucleus programmatically if you'd like, right? So there's actually ways of saying, hey, we actually have this report, whether it's a CSV report, maybe we've got all of our data stored in a SQL database somewhere. Because uh, we know a lot of pen testers that kind of just compile all their stuff into a single spot and upload it. Um, that's one option. And then your standard automation is going to, that's already built into Nucleus. It does, it's, it's vendor and uh, source agnostic. So it doesn't really care where the data comes from. If it's a critical vulnerability that meets your risk prioritization criteria, it'll automatically get escalated and go to the appropriate party based on ownership and everything that you already know about it. But um, if you want to just go in, you, you could literally just log in and say, add finding. Hey okay, guys, finding. super high, go. Yeah. Okay, so you would go inside of Nucleus and add a finding uh, and tag it up appropriately. Exactly. Awesome. Um, what do you think most people are not addressing in the VM space? Most other products that are trying to solve this, like what are the big problems and what are they missing on addressing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because, you know, it depends how big you'd like to define this question, right? Because like if I think even, even think vulnerability management, um, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, when you think of vulnerability management, you think of Tenable, Qualys, Rapid7, OpenVos, those types of tools, right? 
Mm-hmm. And the reality is that their vulnerability discovery systems, not vulnerability management systems, if you really kind of, you know, want to, if I wanted to throw hands. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that's a mis, you know, a misnomer for the industry as a whole. Um, I'm going to take those aside, though, because I think at this point in in kind of the industry speak, we all are aware that that's actually kind of not the same thing as what like the nucleuses of the world are trying to solve. Um, so if I look, you know, like at the RBVM space, right, that's your, you know, you look at some of the older, um, the previous vendors out there, right? Like, so Kenneth Security was one of the early ones. And um, I thought that they did a great job within certain aspects of the larger VM process, but they focused almost exclusively on prioritization, right? That's so, right. yep. And I'm and I don't disagree in any way that prioritization is a big problem. It is a huge problem. The things that tools like that miss and the newer versions, I call them the newer Kenneth, the newer versions of Kenneth. What they miss is that they started by looking at, at prioritization, started to solve prioritization, and then kind of looked up out of their little hidey holes and said, Oh no, like there's way, there's like this is a much bigger problem here. But they had built themselves into a corner by yeah. focusing on prioritization. And so the thing that that I think that we got right, now we have a long way to go. Don't get me wrong. Like this is a really early market, right? And I think kind of proved the market. But there's so much more here to, to do and to solve. We're, so, we're like probably a decade away from like anybody really cracking the nut on this thing in my, in my view. But we started saying, by, and we were just in a lucky position or a fortunate position where we could see that there are 12 or 15 different teams of stakeholders. Like there's GRC teams that need access to vulnerability data. There are freaking developers that need access to the data. There are patch managers. There's the board members. There's the CISO. There's the vulnerability management analysts. There's SOC teams. Like there's so much here actually going on with this data that we realized really quickly that the real problem here is that there's just a rat's nest of process that, that has no central view. And it's not, about the, it's not about the individual stage. Prioritization is a problem, yes. Patch management is a problem, yes. You know, at being able to scan more effectively, problem, yes. But nobody is really focusing on the, well, cool, even if we solve the discovery problem, we're still not gonna have the transition of data from discovery to prioritization, to triage, to analysis, to reporting, to monitoring, to compliance reporting to all of the pieces, nobody is going to solve that. And that's what I think is missing from the, from the industry. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on with that. H- how about um, dashboards and visibility? When I was asking about yep. like drivers, one of the things, unfortunately, that I, I see that still works from like the 90s is name and shame. Yeah. Unfortunately, like it yeah. still really works. So is that something that you have the ability to do? Do you encourage that, uh, even though it's a little bit gross? Like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we obviously can do that, right? So we we have all the ownership information, we have all the SLA information, we have all of the prioritization information, we have all of the data about all the activities that every person is doing, whether it's all the tickets, we even know ticket timelines, right? We could say, hey, this team actually remediates vulnerabilities at a faster rate than this other team across, you know, a cross section of their assets, right? We could say, hey, this team is better at mission critical asset patching than this other team over here. So you can absolutely do that. Uh, I would say that we don't necessarily encourage it. We, we want you to be able to have visibility into it so that you can make better decisions at a higher level. But we view it more as a, hey, do you need to put more budget in a place over like over here? Do they need help? Because realistically, it's never like a, we don't think, we don't think it's anybody's fault necessarily for not being able to get vulnerabilities patched. It's really just a focus issue in a lot of ways. There's like focus and, and data. And so you can absolutely do it. We do have customers that that mandate that and kind of have like what they would call like a team scorecard. So like I'm a managing director, I log in, I can see what I'm responsible for fixing. But like the reality is that for us, when users are doing that, the NPS score is way lower because they don't like they don't, they're not feeling good about the process and the platform, right? And so we have these kind of, it's an interesting situation where it's like we have really high NPS scores for people that actually are responsible for vulnerability management. And then like we have people that are responsible for 
like, you know, I'll, I'll call it the, the customers that try the, the stick approach where they force them to like log in every day and look at their data. And then they get like publicly shamed for not fixing data fast enough. Like we bear the consequences of that as a platform. And I personally, as a founder, it's not really why I, we wanted to build the Nucleus product. We built it to help people, not to shame people. And so uh, we don't encourage it. Uh, it does happen, but there are much better ways in our opinions um, and, and the ways that we structure our implementations and onboarding uh, kind of in a, in a different direction around how we can make an entire organization better and buy into it. Interesting. Uh, so let me push back on that r real quick. So sure. what, what if you have an organization where everybody on the engineering side and all the stakeholder side, they all want to fix things. They all are bought in, but they are simply pushed way harder on mm -hmm. the feature side. Sure. So, so the vulnerability management program before bringing you all in, yep. this wasn't working because nobody was fixing anything. Mm -hmm. And the calls would basically go like this. Look, these are serious vulnerabilities. We have to fix these. Yep. And they're like, yeah, no, I totally get you. But like, we don't have time. We don't have the developers. Like we can't do it. So what happened was they went to the head of engineering. They got like a shared OKR or something. Mm -hmm. yep, they yep. got buy-in. It is now coming top down. Mm -hmm. But even then they still don't know exactly what to fix. And they don't, they're not, if they're not pressured consistently and constantly, yep. it's still not going to happen because the pressure true. from the feature side is so strong. So it's Absolutely. not that people don't want to do it. It's just that the other, the other side pressure is too strong. Absolutely. So in those cases, don't, don't you think, um, that team tracking and the team scoreboard and the gamification of like, mm -hmm. this other team is green, this one is yep. orange, this one is red is, it is so valuable. It absolutely is. And I, and maybe I, maybe I need to caveat my previous statement. Because that absolutely does happen, right? But a big part of that issue is visibility in a lot of ways, right? It's like, you don't even know that you're doing poorly in a lot of, in a lot of areas because most of the Scrum teams that I've worked with, they do want to get better, right? That's the whole point of like the agile process is constantly improving, constant iteration. And the reality is, is you're going to miss your OKR in that situation if you're not, you know, if, if it is part of an OKR and is not there. So in that case, it's how do we enable them to, to do that as more so than, hey, you guys are not doing a good job. Now, granted that, in my experience, when it comes to development and engineering teams, it's pretty apparent who's not doing well because of the way that it's set up. It's like, you don't really have to explicitly say, you know, pointing fingers and say, you guys are not meeting the criteria. All you have to do is make the data available and say, hey, here's your OKR. Here's the data that shows that you're not meeting your OKR. And then, you know, have consistent. Um, there's, so there's ways of presenting it where it's not just complete shaming like it was in the 90s. But I do agree that it's absolutely valuable. And that's, that's why that visibility is so important, right? It's, it needs to be important for everybody, right? I, as the team, need to know how I'm doing. My manager needs to know how all of the teams are doing. Manager above him needs to know how all of his managers are doing. Like you need that visibility at every level. It's just really about how you use the data, I think. Yeah. And combining it with positivity as well, right? Where, where it's like, hey, congrats to so-and-so team for exactly. getting 5% compliance. So it's all, not always negative messaging. Exactly. What do you think you all are doing really well? And what do you think uh, are the features that you're looking to bring out because uh, you feel it's not as strong? Absolutely. That's a great question. And as I always tell everybody that I talk to, this is still a very new market, right? So even if, you know, any, any company that's crushing it still has a long way to go in terms of solving this problem. And I would say the stuff that we do really well is what I would call the foundational elements of what we're trying to do. So uh, I mentioned this before around just massive data ingest, massive data, like the, the data efficacy and data being up to date and correct and being set up so that we can essentially just start adding features in the future. Um, I would say we do really extremely well. The second thing we do extremely well is automation. So we are probably, probably first, you know, best in class in this area around like what types of things you can do uh, with your vulnerability data as it's coming in and doing that at scale so that it doesn't fall over when you have 50 million vulnerabilities a day that you're trying to ingest 
or you know hundreds of millions of vulnerabilities or billions of vulnerabilities every single day. Um, so we do really well with the size and complexity of data and then being able to act on it in a way that's scalable. So it gets into the right normalized format and you can do something with it. Um, the areas that I would say we need to uh, really focus on and we're gonna continue to focus on would be around, I would call like the, like solving the last 10% of all of the use cases. So I would, I would classify us right now as a product that's we've solved 90% of all of the major use cases. So say reporting or you know, SLA tracking or you know, uh, call it ticketing inside of Nucleus workflow management. Uh, so we're, we're like 90% of the way on, mo on most of these systems. And so we need to basically push the last 10% in those, right? So for example, we don't have fully custom dashboarding. Now we had this hypothesis at the beginning that we didn't need to be a dashboarding system because there's Power BI and Tableau and all the downstream systems yeah. that we can push to. Now, the thing that we underestimated was that even with the normalized data that we have, there's so much there that a lot of those systems fall over also. And so there's not a real, and they're not really built for vulnerability management. So it's really difficult to build a Power BI dashboard that's based on vulnerability data, even if it's already been pre-normalized and is the latest information for you. So we need to get better at, at I would call just like insight uh, reporting, for example, and we're pushing through that. Um, and then we have a lot of really what I would consider like the more innovative type of stuff that we're planning to roll out in the future. So, um, you know, there's the bread and butter, like, oh, we have an acceptance request for a risk acceptance and we want to push that out to a GRC and have that throw up a flag and, you know, like they can hit yes or no and then have that interact with Nucleus. So you've got some stuff like that on the roadmap too, just for like what I would call like ease of life, better process. Again, it goes back to just process, right? Um, but some of the stuff that I'm very excited about, um, there's some things out there around raising the fire alarm. Um, so internally, we call it the Nucleus fire alarm. But it's like basically automated, like it's automated detection of that stuff that that really fine grain needle in the haystack. And there maybe it should only be one or two times a year that this goes off. But we actually have indicators and detections before the log4j's actually like hit the news or before they become a thing. Like we know hours before that because of the data feed. Is that, that a threat intelligence feed, or how are you learning about that kind of stuff? Yeah, so we know about that from uh, some from some threat intel feeds, absolutely. Um, we, we enrich our vulnerability data with lots of info, but the thing that we know about it and the reason that we can detect it is actually because the attributes, most of these vulnerabilities are known vulnerabilities. It's very rarely that it's a zero day. So what actually changes is that it's a vulnerability attribute within a known vulnerability that changes, not actually a brand new vulnerability that ends up hitting. So like log4j was known about for a couple of weeks before it hit the news and became a thing. Um, and there were indicators saying, okay, Hey, this thing now has code. You know, there's, it went very quickly from a thing that was discovered to, hey, they're talking about it on forums to there's a code POC to, hey, this thing is probably wormable to, hey, somebody's tried it and it works to, oh no, it's like everywhere. And okay, so, so you're, yeah. you're talking about the subcomponent of CBSS of exploitability. Exactly. But CBSS itself doesn't give that to you, right? It's, it, it does, but you don't have access to the indicators themselves, for example. So you're right. able to change that attribute based on the thread intel, which toggles the risk uh, rating system which puts that up to the top. Correct. And, which means it could yeah, yeah. go above the threshold of like the once or twice a year type thing. Exactly. So it's like, hey, this might be a critical vulnerability and it's on a publicly facing asset, but if there's no code exploits available, like maybe it's, so it's still in our normal SLA. So maybe we have a two week SLA, we discover it, but then, you know, overnight it changes and all of a sudden now it's being used in ransomware really quickly. Now there's five or six different APT crews using it. Maybe those APT crews are targeting my industry specifically. And therefore, if all of these things are true, I can actually automatically raise an alarm and trigger like a pager duty alert, ops genie, uh, those types of things. So that would be like one thing that we're really excited about. Well, um, for a future thing or that's already in there? You can hmm. technically already do that. Um, but what we want to do is to make that basically front and center 
a uh, a thing where it's basically labeled yeah. as a risk. It's like, and then the nice thing about it is if we do it in that way, now if users do log into Nucleus, you can actually just say, hey, your job when you log into Nucleus is just check to see if you ever have anything in this category. If so, just drop everything that you're doing and fix it. Like it's an incident management response process for vulnerabilities that you can then track as an incident rather than just tracking it as a normal vulnerability. That is really smart uh, because that's a problem that everyone has, as you all know. Hmm. Whenever there is a log4j, the first thing everyone needs to know as a team is like, what's in my scope? Exactly. What, what is vulnerable? And what are their priorities to fix? So yeah, if you preemptively did that, that would be amazing. Um, what about the overall mix of threat intelligence? Like, so when you have a vulnerability, it has its own rating from the vendor. Then you have the, uh, the risk of the asset, assuming that's been assigned um, yep. either in the product or b before it came into the product. And then you have threat intel. So what are the knobs and like, what's the mix yep, to yep. adjust those ratings? Yeah, for sure. So the way we think about it is, um, I would say it's pretty standard with some of the academic papers that have been coming out over the last few years. Um, but basically the way that we look at it is that um, your overall risk score for an asset vulnerability combination, right? So an asset or a vulnerability exists on a specific asset that gets assigned a risk score. And that is based on a vulnerability subscore and an asset subscore. That yep. asset subscore is made up uh, of a weighted system that you and Nucleus get to turn the knobs on based on different risk attributes on the asset. So again, like let's just let's just use our basic four I was talking about before: business uh, criticality, data sensitivity, um, location in the environment, and compliance. So you can say, hey, you know, every asset has max on all of those, but then you can tune the weightings inside of Nucleus. We can say, actually, we care more about the location in the network and the business criticality, and so those attributes are actually going to uh, account for more of the weighting uh, for for more of the asset subscore. Right. So let's just say, you know, asset subscore scale of one to 10, you're on your way. And then, you know, that's made up of 50% um, the two attributes and then 0%, you know, 50% from the other two. So, you know, basically you can tune that. Um, and then you have a vulnerability subscore. And that vulnerability subscore would be all of your vulnerability attributes that are um, non asset specific. So technical severity would be one, but also all we include Mandiant, uh, a Mandiant subscription for free as part of Nucleus because we feel it's that important for our customers to be able to, to do that. And it, it's going to enable, you know, things like, like the fire alarm, like I talked about a minute ago. Um, so things like, hey, is this being exploited in the wild? If so, by who? Is it associated with malware? Uh, if so, by what malware? Um, so you have about, we have about 25 different vulnerability attributes that you actually can see, and then you can tune. And you can say, hey, if this is the case, then I actually want to adjust the risk score of this vulnerability. So we have like a default, and we, we show you the map of everything that you have. And so it could be, you know, hey, it's being mass exploited. It's, there's no, hey, there's remote code execution. Um, and it's, uh, actively being um, act actively targeting another industry, like there's a whole all these different uh, categories and, and attributes that you get to adjust your risk based on um, the weightings of all of those. So you basically can can choose how you want to do that. And then we take your vulnerability subscore and your asset subscore, put that together, and say this vulnerability on this asset has this risk based on essentially the user provided inputs. But obviously there's there's some sensible defaults. And then we start basically saying, okay, well you've got this vulnerability on this asset. Now you have these vulnerabilities on this asset, these vulnerabilities on this set of assets. And then you just kind of work your way up from there, right? So it starts very fundamentally low level and then kind of you just build up and up and up the organization. Yeah. Is there an ability to change the um, one of those component scores? And we were just talking about this a second ago. I'm, yep. I'm not sure if this exists now or if this is future, but you could change one of the elements on the, on the score as part of threat intel. So you're saying yep. actively exploited across the industry. This is, you know, the, the big button or whatever. Yep. Have that just apply to everything. So mm -hmm. now it re restacks everything. Yes, you absolutely can do that. Yep, that's part of our automation framework. So I mentioned earlier uh, in this in this call about 
the um, asset processing, then finding processing, and then getting to your normalized set of data. That is part of what we call our, our ingest pipeline. And then you get to essentially with the Nucleus Automation Framework sort of put your logic into the ingest pipeline to say, what do you want to have happen to asset data that looks like this? What do you want to do to vulnerability data that looks like this? And then you get to your, your single source of truth kind of post-processing of those two, those two stages. Okay, so let, let's say I'm, I'm an engineering manager and I'm doing my security work. And Log4j was number five yep. yesterday, as mm -hmm. I looked. But I log in this morning. Is there a way for you as the owner of the Nucleus system to readjust um, Log4j yep. and be like, okay, it's, it's an emergency now. Will it get adjusted up in my list? Of course. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so, but, but I'm looking at a JIRA ticket. Did it propagate through the JIRA ticket? Like yes. Yep. So if you have a ticket created already, or let's actually, let's take, we have two scenarios here. Let's say there's no ticket created because it doesn't meet the criteria for a ticket to be created, right? Maybe our automation rule is we only create tickets with a certain criteria if it is like a certain number in the list, for example. So last night it was, there was no ticket and then overnight it got adjusted up, right? Yep. The process of adjusting it up actually triggers the automation rule that says, okay, well, now we have a new vulnerability that meets this criteria. Now go create the ticket to the appropriate party. And that just happens, right? That just happens automatically based on the data itself changing, which is why. Uh, which is why that's what gets me really excited about our product, right? Is you essentially define what do you want to have happen, and then as the data itself changes, it just kind of just kind of magically happens, right? The other alternative here is that I actually have two I have two different uh, kind of branches of my logic, which is hey, the ticket is one way when it's at a high severity, and then hey, maybe it goes up to a critical or it gets re-rated at a higher level. There's actually a different ticketing rule to to take care of that. So we actually have the ability to say, okay, well, do you, would you rather adjust the existing ticket? Or would you like to close the existing ticket and open in a new emergency ticket because maybe you have a different Jira type uh, or like a task oh, yeah. type or whatever, right? So you actually, and that has a whole other set of automation in Jira or ServiceNow or any other ticketing system. So you can, you can basically, that's just a setting in your automation on how you'd like to handle that. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. Well, this is fantastic. Um, it's very clear to me that you guys are very close to this problem and have like, have all the battle wounds of uh, dealing with the process around it, not just the tech. Uh, yeah, really cool stuff. Where can we learn more about it? Yeah, you can learn more about it uh, pretty much on any social media platform that you that you care about. I mean, we're most active on LinkedIn, um, or you can just hit up our website, and we've got a bunch of newsletters and stuff you can subscribe to. We're always doing stuff that's, again, to your point, it's less about Nucleus, the product, and it's more about education and helping people get to the next stage because there's just as much process issues here as there are technology issues. And yep. so we have a ton of, of uh, information around that. We've got a whole bunch of info around new types of prioritization methodologies that different uh, government organizations are trying, all that sort of fun stuff. Um, there's a concept, you know, this EPSS score that is built into Nucleus that you can use. And we'll, we have deep dives on what that means. We have a deep dive into the Sysicab list, all that sort of fun stuff. But um, our website, you can find us at NucleusSEC.com. So that's Nucleus and then SEC.com. That's probably the best place to find us. Fantastic. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. Unsupervised Learning is produced and edited by Daniel Meisler on a Neumann U87 AI microphone using Hindenburg. Intro and outro music is by Zombie with a Y. And to get the text and links from this episode, sign up for the newsletter version of the show at danielmeisler.com slash newsletter. We'll see you next time.